Hello. Before we get down to cinema, I would like to draw your attention to our Patreon. Regular listeners will know that these podcasts are supported by Quad, our home cinema in Derby, UK. But as Quad is a charity, we want to make Cinelet as self-sustainable as possible. So, to that end, we have set up a two-tier way in which you can support Cinelit. For our 35mm Cine fans, you'll get a bonus additional episode each month where we will be deep diving into an area of cinema that will be exclusive to Patreon subscribers for at least six months before it arrives like a late dinner guest on the regular feed. Plus, you get the episodes a week in advance of the main feed release. But if you want to support us and don't feel that pressing need to have the additional podcast each month, but still want that warm, satisfying feeling of being part of the Cinelit success story, then you can become an 8mm Cine fan where you can donate and get our heartfelt thanks. Head over to the Patreon page and subscribe if you can. However, we know that times are hard at the moment, so please do not feel you need to subscribe if you are not able. We'll still be putting out new, free-to-listen-to episodes on a regular basis throughout the year. Now let's get back to your regular scheduled broadcast. Welcome to the latest instalment of the never-ending soap opera that is Cinelit. This week we are the Ask the Ages Old Questions. Why do musicians try and act? I am your host, Adam Marsh, and I'm joined by Cinelit's resident expert, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? I'm good, thanks, Adam. Yeah, looking forward to this one. Last time was Bowie, so now we're opening the field a little bit. Bowie and others, as, it, <laughs> as the <laughs> schedule permits. As we're looking at musicians who cross over and dabble into acting, I thought it would be prudent to have at least one person on the podcast who can play something more intricate than Farah Jacka. So we are delighted to welcome to the podcast uh, Rob Lane from the Straight to Video podcast and, vitally important, someone who is actually a musician. Welcome, Rob. Thank you ever so much, Adam. Great to be here. I appreciate you having me on board. Cool. So do you want to, do you want to tell the, our, our vast army of listeners um, <laughs> a little bit about your podcast? Uh, yeah, um, in the last, uh, well, during lockdown, like most musicians seem to do, I decided to venture into the world of podcasting, something I've been thinking about for probably about five or six years since getting hooked on Kevin Smith's podcast back in the day. He was one of the OGs, if you like. Um, so he kind of set the seed. And yeah, I just decided to get chatting to some of my and musician friends um, all about how they grew up and the path that they kind of took and I just tied it in with my whole straight to video um, retro music movie soundtrack project which I've had for a few years so everything's available at stvpod.com that's the only plug I'm going to do so <laughs> I'll get in and I'll get out well it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful mix of, of, of hard rock and transformers <laughs> I guess, yeah, if, if you want to look at that kind of stuff uh, yeah no it's a great it's a great podcast uh, you had a guy from thunder on a, a couple of that's right yeah go away so it was I'm harkening back to my teenage years, <laughs> listening to Thunder, watching that 1990 Donington performance. It's like, oh, oh my man. God. Yeah. One of the <laughs> yeah, so it's back to my teenage years. Threw me right back there. But we're not talking about that today. We're talking about uh, those, kind of act, those kind of acts who decide to try and act. Um, so we're looking at actors, musicians rather, who transition or try to transition into acting. Uh, as Daryl said, we did the David Bowie one a couple of weeks ago, and Bowie is probably one of the more successful um, uh, musicians who transferred into acting. Um, Daryl on Helm the Podcast last week, Rob, um, professed his hatred for uh, Labyrinth. Wow. 
Yeah, see, I, I knew, I knew, I knew you'd be yeah, on my side with that. That's, one. <laughs> now that's that's what you get on Sydney Lit. You see, you get you get conflict. So we don't we don't always agree. So welcome to the bear pit. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> so where where should where should we start? I mean, I I looked at the vast list of actors that have uh, musicians that have transitioned into acting, and uh, I, I thought, well, Mick Jagger would be a good start. I didn't start with performance. I started with Free Jack. Um, you know, he arguably his his uh, his uh, peak of his acting career uh, the job he took one week before filming started um <laughs> in, yeah uh, so yeah that was that was and to be fair to be fair to mick he's not the worst thing in that film <laughs> what year uh, was that that was 1992 and it was yeah. <laughs> it was, I was Samantha, say like 86 or 87 or something it like it just that. looks that way <laughs> um <laughs> But it was like Sir Anthony Hopkins' first role after he won the Oscar for Hannibal Lecter, and he went straight into Free Jack. It was like, yeah, oh. Now, as 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 we speak, he's just won this year's Oscar. So, yeah. does that mean we're going to get Free Jack two in six months' time? <laughs> we're going to get the twenty first century equivalent of Free Jack, I think. A um, reboot, yeah. Free Jack reboot <laughs> with a cameo, yeah, with a plot that makes sense that is not blatantly obvious as soon as it starts. Um, yeah, but, but as I'm watching, and he's not bad. He's got a little bit of the charisma. It's a terribly written film. So you don't really get, you can't really judge him too too harshly. But yeah. he, he brings some of his charisma to that role. Um, That's right. It's, it's, not, it's not a film that, it's, it's, a bad, it's a bad film anyway. It's not a film that is bad because the, the pop star wanting to be an actor brings it down, which is probably going to be the case in some of the others that we talk about. But uh, yeah, in this case, Mix, okay. You know, as you say, he's not the worst thing in it, is he? No. Probably going to fall from the curse of films which were released in that weird mid-90s period, which very few hold up these days. You wonder what some Hollywood decisions were during that period of time. I think a, I think a lot of it's down to the special effects. I mean, they're all, they all look like they're a straight out of lawnmower man. You know the, the kind yeah, of yeah. The, the cyber effects. Adam, um, it was groundbreaking. It was groundbreaking. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It was groundbreaking. It still looks terrible now. Yeah. To be oh. fair, it looked pretty terrible then. Uh, yeah. Even even with the sort of like groundbreaking effects, I think it was like. Ugh. I think only one film gets a pass with groundbreaking special effects, and that was Last Starfighter, which looked <laughs> terrible, but at the time they were genuinely groundbreaking. <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah, I lost last Starfighter. I mean, the, the fact that it hasn't been remade is 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 astonishing. Quite frankly, when they remade literally everything else, yeah. you know, they're literally going around the empty empty cave like Daffy Duck, looking for that last bit of gold. And uh, there's the last Starfighter right in the corner. What's going on? Why haven't you remade me? You know, with one of the strongest storylines of any yeah. sci-fi film going. Exactly, high concept idea. Come on, get on, get on with it, Hollywood. <laughs> I know you're listening. Yeah. So uh, on on Mick then, what what do we think? Uh, I mean, we, we we're saying he's not the worst thing in Free Jack. What what do we think about his other big roles? Because he did Ned Kelly and performance um, around the same time in the early late sixties, early seventies. So what what do we think of Mick as an actor in general? Because he's not he's not done a lot, and and which is a good choice, I think. You know, do you think these were like agent decisions or Mick decisions? Oh, that's a good question. This will be great I, for your career, yeah. mate. The music's <laughs> quietening down. This is the next step. I, 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 I reckon it's not. I reckon, I reckon, um, maybe the nineties one. It was like maybe you should think about moving into acting. The albums are not selling as well, but the tours always sold really well, didn't they? Rolling yeah, Stones. Yeah. They were always like the biggest touring outfit in the world throughout the eighties. So. 
I bet every time we took on a film role, an agent's going, no, that means you can't tour for six months. So, yeah. you know, it's yeah. true. <laughs> you know, so it's, I think probably the agent's tearing his hair at every time he picks up a, a, a screenplay. Yeah, but it's odd that he's done so little, really, you know, because he's obviously interested in film, even to the point where he produced uh, Enigma a few years ago. Mm. So every now and then he sort of gets the bug, you know, and it, it's but he's, he's not a David Bowie. He's not someone who needed to do it like twice a year, you know. No, I mean, the 60s ones feel like they were separate to the rest. Yeah, yeah. They feel like they were ones that in the, in the 60s, everyone's doing it. You know, music wasn't the big, as big a paying uh, job as it became in the 80s, with particularly for Mick Jagger. Um, it wasn't as big a paying job in the 60s. So it was like, well, you've got to diversify. you got to do bits yeah. of bobs here and there. Um, and of course, what you had in the 60s was your sort of post-Beatles movies in the main, certainly in Britain, where Hard Day's Night and Help had come out. And I'm sure we'll we'll talk about some of the some of the, the better examples of that as we as we go on. Um, the, the Dave Clark Five film is is particularly good. Um, uh, catch us if you can. But uh, um, but it seems every band, you know, Spencer Davis was doing a, a sort of haunted house movie called The Ghost Goes Gear with Nicholas Parsons and Ackerbill, you know, and that's the sort of thing you're getting in the 60s. And so Mick was obviously thinking, well, if the Stones do a movie, it ain't going to be like that. It's not going to be some piece of junk, you know. It's not going to be something like Gonks Go Beat or something like that. Um, and then the script for performance comes along and he he must have thought, this is something, you know, this this is... This is different, you know. This this isn't a hard day's night, you know. This is the sort of thing I want to do. You can see the appeal. Well, it feels like it's a very different type of proposition. It was like, you know, it, well, it's it's, not, it's, a, it's a proper film, I guess. It's a proper film, but it's yeah. also it's a role for Mick Jagger. It's not a it's not a Rolling Stones movie, no. where you know the Beatles movie. It's all, it's all about the Beatles running away from fans, that kind of stuff. Oh, they were all kind of going with the hype and the mania at the time, weren't they? It's like. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, so but it, this felt like it was just a side project, I mean, and you know, take that as you will. As, as a as a Rolling Stones fan, what are you do in acting, go away. You come. When's the next album out? You know that kind of mentality. But for Mick, it, it's a proper role, proper director. You know, well respected director, and you know, it 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 was well received. Yeah, and and still it still is to this day. Yeah. You know, it's, it's regarded as one of the highlights of his career, which is saying something. Yeah, know? yeah. So should we get into the into the sixties films then? Because because they they kind of set the template for a lot of movies, particularly Hard Day's Night. I mean, Hard Day's Night, the the story of the everyday life of of the, of the Beatles and the band is replicated time and time again. Insert latest pop band, <laughs> Spice Girls. Insert you know <laughs> monkeys, whatever you know. Yeah, well, mentioning the Spice Girls there, I, th- I think I think they're they're a clear. Um... Uh, sort of bookends there because I think A Hard Day's Night kicked off a certain type of pop movie and Spice World probably ended it and I, I think I think they both films have got their merit you know but uh, and in between there was a lot of dross but the occasional um, decent film involving a band or occasionally you'd get movies involving several bands you know and um, but yeah I think Hard Day's Night is a massively important film because we previously had, I mean, the, the the 50s rock and roll movie had been big in America. It had sort of hit Britain with people like Tommy Steele 
and Cliff Richard. But then you've got things like The Girl Can't Help It coming out in America, which which didn't have rock stars acting in it, but it sort of had them as sidelined. It dragged them on and, and, and sort of interspersed them with the plot, which was a genius way of getting Eddie Cochran and Little Richard and Fats Domino on screen. But then suddenly there was this idea, I suppose it started with Elvis, really. There was this idea that, hey, we'll, we'll get these guys into acting. And maybe that stemmed from going back to, even going back as far as the, the 20s or through the 30s and 40s, certainly up to the 40s where you've got figures like Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra, and even people like James Cagney and Fred Astaire, who were sort of seen as being a bit of, oh, they can, they can sing, dance, act, play serious roles, do comedy, do a bit of everything, you know. Nara and entertainer. And I suppose we had that then in the 50s with Tommy Steele and Cliff, you know. But uh, but yeah, Hard Day's Night was something very, very different. Again, as we've just said about performance, it was a real movie with a proper director. And and it, and the, the, the great thing about it is it really played on, as you've just mentioned, Rob, the Beatlemania and the whole, the whole um, you know, fan thing. And so it was a film about the Beatles, but it was about a heightened version of the Beatles. Yeah, exactly what Spice World became as well, really. It was just totally took the blueprint. I think these films are great where you get the, the people playing themselves, but they're sort of playing movie character versions yeah. of themselves, you know. And I think Hard Day's Night really set the template for that. See, that answers my, 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 what was going to be my next question. Are they acting? Is this a case of when, <laughs> when we, it's called when musicians act? Are these cases, are they actually acting? Or are they, is it more a case of like playing themselves? Do, do you think, I, I think, I think there's a difference in these films. I think sometimes, um, especially, you know, when, you, when you've got the drummer who doesn't want to be there anyway and they've had to get up at five o'clock in the morning, they're just going to sort of mooch along after everyone else in in whoever it is, the Dave Clark Five or Herman Sermich, you know, the bass player's not going to be interested. But I think in, in the Beatles, all four guys, as we've seen since, have shown an interest in movies. They've all gone off and made their own movies. George Harrison had his own movie company, for God's sake, you know. And and um, and so I think right from the start, and of course, John Lennon and Paul McCartney have both said that um, there might not even have been a Beatles had it not been for uh, The Girl Can't Help It, Frank, Frank Tashlin movie, which they, they went to see when they were when they were teenagers. And they loved seeing Eddie Cochran and Gene Vincent on screen. And they went back to their own band, the Quarrymen, and started copying what they'd seen in The Girl Can't Help It. Wow, I never knew um, that. Yeah, yeah. And they and they both they both admitted that in interviews. They said if it hadn't been for that movie with Jane Mansfield, we 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 probably would have formed the band, but we wouldn't have done all the rock and roll moves and worn the leather and everything, you know. And so Hamburg wouldn't have happened and the rest wouldn't have happened. Oh, and yeah. uh, um and so I think they were obviously film fans as kids, you know, and uh, um, I think they, they brought that into A Hard Day's Night. And of course, you've got Richard Lester there, who'd already worked with people like the Goons, who the Beatles were fans of. So they, they'd have known Richard Lester's work. And, and you're getting this mesh, you know, it's this, it's this tight unit that's working together and they all know what they're doing and they're all aiming for the same thing. And that thing is to take the piss out of Beatlemania, which I think the film does brilliantly. You could almost argue that um, musicians or bands within that format, you say, are they acting or are they just playing like a, 
uh, overblown version of the subject. You could say, in a way, musicians are acting anyway when they go on stage. A lot of people say that it's their alter ego when they're on stage. It's like you meet them off stage, they're nothing like that, the character which they're playing on stage. So it's probably just turning the volume up just a little bit when it gets on screen. That's perhaps all it is. Yeah, dialing up to 11 to yeah. uh, move on. Another go movie tap? quote. <laughs> final tap, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I feel like that there's a real difference between Mick Jagger in performance and all those kind of movies that we've been talking about in that way where they're playing themselves and it's, it's a version of themselves on screen. I think there's, uh, I think John Lennon did a little bit of acting in the, in the sixties. Um, yeah. How, how, I, how I won the how war, I won the again, war. again for Richard Lester. So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, so I, I, and I think that's different to the, to the stuff he did. Um, particularly in hard days. Night. I think help is a very different proposition. And I think the monkeys, uh, head movie is a very different movie yeah, as well. Yeah. Well, head head is a film that you can tie in with the catchers if you can actually the Dave Clark Five film that I mentioned earlier because they're 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 both very very cynical about the business and and the whole point of the movies is to sort of almost destroy rock and roll from within you know and to sort of say look. We're, we're manipulated musicians who are being told what to do, and we're going to make a film about that. And, and that happens in both the case of uh, Catchers, if you can, and um, and Head. Um, I, I think they're great sort of twin movies for that. So if you're looking for the ultimate cynical movie music double bill, there it is. You know, uh, Head's Head's a bit more sort of psychedelic and freewheeling. Catchers, if you can, takes the British angle. It's directed by uh, John Borman, very early film for him, and. Um, and it, and it goes almost down the sort of kitchen sink type route, you know, and it's very, it's it's all set in the world of advertising, which tells, tells you all you need to know about the sort of uh, cynicism and manipulative qualities of it. And the band are sort of being pushed into different sort of uh, um, having to make commercials and do promotional films and being told where to go by their manager and stuff. And and the movie's all about that. It's all about their reaction to that and saying, look, we don't want to do this. And Head sort of does the same thing, but in, in a way that's a bit more sort of cartoony and colourful. You know, I mean, Catchers If You Can's in black and white for starters. So it's mm. right in the middle of that British uh, sort of kitchen sink period. And it feels like it. It's a very dour, sort of downbeat movie, you know. And uh, But yeah, I, I think that and Head are, are, are basically saying the same thing. And I think what you've got there is the bands playing themselves in the same way that the Beatles do in their movies, but the message is different. And, and it's clearly coming from the, 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 the bands are obviously thinking this. They're right in tune with what the films are about. And, and they're, they're delighted to have the chance to say, look, it's a shit business. Why? <laughs> why, why, why would they do that? <laughs> you're, you're popular musicians and you make a film talking about how shit the business is yeah. and about how everything you see that if, you love if you, is if wrong. You, if, you think, if you think about this, you get bands doing this on records. You, you get to how many songs are there that are the band writing a song about how much they hate the record company? <laughs> I, I don't know why they do it because it Enough. seems like... It seems like career suicide, but it's... I think there's probably enough for a record company to put together a double album and release it (laughs) (laughs) and make money off it. Um, And if they haven't, they're missing a trick. 
Is, is, is it a case here in the movies and in the songs of everybody, everyone's a winner because the, the bands get five minutes where they get a chance to feel like they're off the leash and nobody's telling them what to do. And the record company or the movie company or whoever it may be or the commercial company or whoever are thinking, well, nobody's listening to the message. You know, all they want to know is that we've got Sting or we've got Madonna in front of the cameras, you know, or whoever it may be. And um, there is almost that sense that the record company or the movie company don't mind the no, they, they sort of feel like nobody's going to listen to this message anyway they just want to go and see the pop stars on film you know or listen to the records they don't care what the song's about you know um they don't listen to the songs that closely i don't think (laughs) i think there's that sense to it definitely so every everyone comes out feeling they've won you know so so all the artists think they're getting one over on the record company. The record company feel really bad while they're counting the money. Um, exactly. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> okay. yeah. Right, okay. It's what's Smith. in the contract. <laughs> yeah. So we've got we've got like I say we've got a quite a dour uh, kitchen sink style drama from the Dave Clark Five. Fast forward like ten years or so, and Slade did a very similar thing with their movie, uh, in Flame. And yeah. Um Slade in Flame. Yeah. So uh, Slade known as the cheeky Midlands chappies um, can't spell properly and having number one hits and Christmas songs. They were offered the chance to do this film called uh, The Quite a Mess Experiment, which is obviously a, gonna, was going to be a science fiction spoof on Quite a Mess. They didn't like it mainly because uh, I think Dave Hill got killed off in the first 10 minutes. That's fine. Like, well, I'm fine yeah, with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 he wasn't, though. And the band, the band were a sort of unit. And they thought, well, if we're going to do a movie, we want to do something that we, we all do together, you know. And, um, and then the, the um, flame got offered to them. And, uh, well, what, what a film. It's, you, you were talking earlier, Adam, about uh, real, real films as opposed to, you know, pop star jaunts sort of thing. And this looked as though it could have easily been, oh, it's Slade doing, having a bit of fun in a movie. It's nothing like that. It's horrible. It's it's <laughs> ghastly. And it's a proper... In a good way. It's, yeah, it is. It's, it's a proper downbeat drama. And what, what a film it is. Again, there are genuine performances from the band. You know, it's, it's, they're, they're not playing Slade. They're playing another band, which, which adds that little bit of distance. Uh, I, I think you're getting genuine performances out of them as far as possible. That's one that passed me by. That is, I didn't, never realized Slade did a movie. That's crazy. Oh, Rob, see it, see it. Yeah. It's, it's great. It is, it is great. And the album that Slade did for it is arguably their best. I mean, yeah. I'm, 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 yeah. And again, it's got all, it's, it's got none of the hits on and it's got all the sort of melancholy songs that they start, stuff like How Does It Feel and yeah. things like that. And they tie in with the tone of this movie brilliantly. It's all about the death of rock, you know, and about how terrible the industry is and and um, real sort of rise and fall stuff, you know. And I suppose we'd, we'd had just before then, we'd had the the, the twin assault of the, the brilliant, um, the equally brilliant two films uh, with uh, David Essex as the Jim McClane character in uh, That'll Be The Day and Stardust. And again, Stardust is as grim as it gets in, in terms of... Uh, Isn't Ringo films. in one of those? Yeah, he is. He's he's in that'll be the day. And of course, he he, he directed Mark Bolan in in the Mark Bolan movie uh, Born to Boogie, which was just a straightforward 
if if you can call a, a, a biopic of T-Rex straightforward, you know, <laughs> it, it was it was basically T-Rex the movie. It was film of them in concert and so on. That must have been weird for Ringo because there's there are shots in Born Born to Boogie where you see T-Rex on stage and Ringo's there filming it as the director. And and you've got this this cinema or theatre or whatever filled with screaming girls and Ringo sort of behind a camera 10 yards away, you know, and you're thinking, well, five years ago, they'd have all been screaming at you, mate. <laughs> now they're screaming at this guy with the, with corkscrew hair, you know. I think in terms of dramatic films and in terms of what we're talking about, in terms of pop stars acting, I think Britain in the mid-70s was really where it was at. And again, David Essex, in, in his two movies, David Essex had already formed a a bit of a pop career you know he'd had hits with things like rock on so but what a great fit he was for this you know and, and how good is he in them i think he's great you know when we talk about those sort of like 70s glam rob you just mentioned it then with like not, not knowing slade had a, had, a, had a movie i don't think there was the, the glam rock movies and there's quite a few of them yeah i don't think they're as well remembered or even remembered at all <laughs> if no, you know no. i i i remember them but then you know i, I, th- I think it's people People who are sort of cult movie fans and people who've got weird taste in British films love those movies. And yeah, other than that, I, th- I think I think they've sort of faded away a little. I think the only seventies movie I remember is Kiss Meets Phantom of the Park. That's only one yeah, I can yeah, think which which was the sort of that was the sort of American version yeah. of what what these British films had been. Very very much, yeah. Kiss were ideal to make a movie. Exactly. This is one thing we were talking about when when we were sort of preparing for this podcast. Though we were discussing why did all the glam rock bands get to make movies, and there there are, there are ones where there's a, a great film, big favorite of mine called. Never too young to rock, which has got the Rubettes, the Glitter Band, Mud, and Bob Kerr's Whoopi Band in it. You know, so you and, and and other artists as well, and and the and you get these sort of jamboree type films where you get um, you know five or six artists involved. There's a film called Side by Side as well, which does the same thing. But what we were talking about is uh, Kiss made a movie, but why didn't the British the the sort of heavy rock bands? make make films i would love to see black sabbath in a haunted house but why 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 did why did zeppelin never they were interested in in the occult and alistair crowley and stuff like that why did led zeppelin and black sabbath and all of the other bands that were coming through at the time never want to sort of dip a toe into fictional film and do a movie makes you wonder if there were ever an offer there from people and they just said no, or probably know. with probably with Peter Grant and uh, considering the management they had, Peter Grant with Zeppelin, Don Arden with 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 Sabbath, you know, um, maybe it was a case of the managers just just not letting a film company anywhere near their their charges. But you know? even back then, in, certainly during the seventies and eighties, a successful band was on that cycle of tour, record, tour, record. It was a yeah, constant yeah, cycle yeah. for whether the record company was pushing for that back then, which I would imagine it was because you heard about so many bands getting burnt out because they just two weeks after a tour, they had to go straight in and record the next album. It's like rinse and repeat for as long as they could. I mean, with with all the bands we've mentioned there, there would be at least one album a year, wouldn't there? Mm-hmm. You know, Bowie was sometimes doing two, you know, and and um, yeah, but with with Sabbath, it was like it, there was that conveyor belt aspect to it, wasn't there? And that yeah. I think that all came from very strong management and from record company demands. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I think I think you're right there. The two things that might have been going on were, were one, the management being very, very strict about what their acts did. And secondly, the record company just wanting them on this constant record, tour, record, tour. Yeah. Um, uh, probably contracted yeah, for like yeah, five yeah, albums yeah. and they were hearing stories which were happening on the road and like we need to get these albums out quick before this band explodes <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or our contract screwed they're all approaching 27 quick yeah <laughs> yeah because yeah. because i think we know that you know zeppelin eventually did a concert movie uh the song remains the same and it had it had little fantasy drama sequences in it so there was clearly the drive there that they they were interested in doing something like that and and then Ozzy once 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 MTV came along and uh you know that whole getting in front of the camera became part of the music biz you couldn't keep Ozzy Osbourne away from it you know and so so he he obviously knew that he could play up to his image but yeah, it's such a shame that he didn't get the chance to do that in a movie in 1971, you know. Do you think that maybe it got to that stage where that the artists like Zeppelin, like uh, Sabbath, were a bit too big for an independent production, but equally not too big for Warner Brothers or Paramount to say, yes, let's make a Sabbath movie? Yeah, I think you're right. They may have fallen between those stalls there, Adam, because they, they'd be too expensive Mm. And and also Peter Grant would be saying, you know, you, you're just going to make some some cheap piece of rubbish. We 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 want this product to be good, you know. And maybe your Warner Brothers and people would would see it as being taking too much of a chance, you know. They'd rather make a proper film than than make something that had Black Sabbath in it, you know. Yeah. So we we, we are, obviously we've been talking about the the. the trials and tribulations of of life on the road and uh, possibly no movie ever made as uh, documented in in strict serious fashion the trials and tribulations of a rock band on the road then then this is spinal tap um <laughs> a, a, a loose parody of saxon i believe uh, was the was the uh, they went on tour with saxon for about uh, 6 months and then just yeah took took, took verbatim yeah, here we've got the reverse of what the podcast is supposed to be about because it's actors playing musicians, you know, and and uh, and, and that shows you how, how successful that can be. Uh, maybe maybe the film business got this wrong all the time, you know. Maybe they shouldn't have had Mick Jagger playing uh, Ned Kelly or whatever. They there should be more of doing it the other way around. <laughs> well, have Ned Kelly play Mick Jagger? <laughs> <laughs> well, well. That that would be good. That would be good. But uh, yeah, the Spinal Tap thing, though, you know, is 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 great. You know, have proper actors who can sort of chug away a bit on yeah. guitar. You know, they they can they can pass for musicians and um, get them playing a fictional band. You know, maybe that's that's the way to do it. Yeah, when they came back to that, absolute, uh, almost famous with uh, the Cameron Crowe movie, had a, yeah, a yeah. fictional band um, yeah. made up of actors. And they actually rehearsed, spent so mm. long in like a rock and roll boot camp. Didn't yeah. They? And, yeah, and again, that's that's really authentic. That's another great movie and one that gets it right and one mm-hmm. that really feels like a proper sort of rock movie, you know, whereas getting the band involved, doing doing Black Sabbath, the movie or whatever, doesn't always work, you know, as we've said, so... Before we move on to, to, to sort of like 80s uh, uh, kind of rock band kind of things, 
one I want to highlight that we've not talked about, which has a musician, but I don't think people really think about him as a musician when he is, but it's Paul Williams in Phantom of Paradise. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think he was a songwriter rather than a, a than known as a, as a pop star. But, well, that was, an, that was an astonishing movie. Yeah, well, again, that fits, although it's an American film, it fits right into that wave of British glam rock movies because it's, it's, it's got Garrett Graham playing uh, Beef the lead singer of the Juicy Fruit, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and that whole great sort of Frankenstein sequence that they do and everything, you know, and uh, really fits in alongside the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And all I was about to say, the yeah. meatloaf in Rocky Horror as well, we've missed out there. <laughs> and uh, I mean, we can talk about meatloaf later on because he did some interesting stuff. So he's a name that we'll leave for a, a, in a few minutes time, you know. But yeah, Phantom of the Paradise is great. And Paul Williams, I think, um, is, is a good sort of screen persona, you know, and he's he's, he's you, you look at Paul Williams and you think, well, he's, he's, he's not an obvious person to put in front of a camera, you know, but I think he really works in this film. He's, uh, he's very, very sinister and um, he's, he's used in a good way. He, he sort of represents and embodies that whole record company manipulation thing that we were talking about earlier on. You, so you've actually got a, an actor there who is playing that as his part you know it's not just a subtext in the background it's a character in the movie is the evils of the music business so we get to the 80s and it feels like there's a shift in the 80s well it's post mtv for one yeah yeah for a start yeah but it it does feel like that they are picking instead of like the whole band comes along it feels like you're picking the lead singer (laughs) after a certain point where it's just like we want to capture something of the charisma of this uh, rock lead singer or whatever and bring that to the movie rather than have them just playing a role i think it's probably i say it's mtv time isn't it so you had all these concept videos where the singer was effectively acting in intercut between live shots or whatever there was a a storyline so every now and again someone from the band would take that role so perhaps that was like dangling the carrot a little bit or seeing who could actually pull something off yeah we chatted a little bit about this on the julian temple podcast because he directed a lot of sort of like elong extended prop promos as they were called like in the 80s yeah, yeah. And then, but I, all bands had these ridiculously long like pop videos it wasn't because when i was a kid growing up i just figured it was michael jack michael jackson gets to do his thriller you know and that's pretty much it you know you get occasionally get other ones do 10 12 minute ones but like abc did a 30 minute pop promo you know with a whole plot line and storyline and all that kind of stuff it's like well, everyone was doing it. It was the de rigueur, I guess, of the day. But yeah, I guess who, who, who were the most successful? <coughs> Prince. Um. The first ones I remember was, um, well, you mentioned, talked about David Bowie in Labyrinth. He was the, one of the first ones. And also Sting in Dune. Um, that was one which I remember as one. Yeah, of the I remember ones. Sting in Dune. It was um, a, a big flop, though. Yes. <laughs> I guess Sting in Dune. Um, so it was a. Uh, I think the first notable one which was a big deal for me was when Madonna was getting into acting. That was yeah. the first one where I really took note. Yeah. Madonna's movie. She, I mean, she obviously she was a mega star at, at that period. And we did a podcast on the Razzies fairly recently and they love her on the Razzies. They nominated her <laughs> every year. They possibly could. They wow. nominate Madonna. That's tough. That's tough. <laughs> I think it is tough. I think, I think Madonna is one of those ones where I think she's never quite done the signature role. Where you think you look at Dave Bowie, you think, okay, Manny Feltsworth, fantastic in that labyrinth. You got a couple of signature roles there, and when you look at Madonna, 
you're thinking, well, I guess it's desperately seeking Susan. Is the signature role for her? I think she was effectively playing the 80s Madonna in Desperately yeah. Seeking Susan, wasn't she? Yeah. But it's obviously, it's not Shanghai Surprise. It's not Who's That Girl. It's, you know, I, I, I guess the other one is, is, is In Bed With Madonna or Madonna Truth or Dare, which was um, in the early 90s. But by then, it was, that, was, that was a different proposition, even though it was a documentary. Yeah, but it, fair play to her. I mean, she, she has stuck at it. She's been hmm. constant. So I think she is one of those people who, um, with stuff you were saying earlier about people in bands, um, I think there is a few exceptions where there is like, someone like David Bowie, who's just an all-round creative person. So it makes sense that he perhaps wants to be in a film or free his creative juices that way. Whereas you say like Black Sabbath or Led Zeppelin, it's like, no, we're a band. Why would we want to be in a movie? Unless it was somebody else's decision. You've got these few exceptions, which are just an embodiment of creativity, like Michael Jackson. They need to express themselves in so many different ways. So fair play to Madonna. I think she's stuck it out. Yeah, I mean, I, and she's 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 by no means troubling Meryl Streep for best actress of the in the ever, you know. But she's not terrible. She no. isn't terrible. She just brings something to the films that she's in. It's another one where I think it, the star is so big. There's just so much like, let's let's watch a fail. Let's watch a screw. Yeah, I think that, I think that's definitely part of it. What do you think, Daryl? Yeah, all the people that you mentioned there, would, um, I think, use the 80s as as a platform for sort of, uh, I mean, some of them launched careers in the 80s. Bowie sort of reinvented himself in the 80s. and uh, But they all used the new sort of commercial propositions of that decade as a means of sort of furthering their careers. One interesting aspect for me with them is that even though they're playing characters in proper films, there's always this level of audience recognition there. There's always this level of, oh, we we know that's Madonna, even though she's playing whatever, you know, a bag lady or whatever it might be, you know. We know who this is. And you, you don't necessarily get that in even even in conventional films, you know, in, in the age of the Hollywood superstar of, of the sort of 1930s and 40s, you may have had people like Betty Davis and Joan Crawford bringing part of that to their roles. And no matter what character they played, there was always this layer of them and their real lives and their real stardom in there. I think that came back in the 80s and it came back not necessarily with movie stars, but with pop stars in film. And I think Madonna really embodies that. And as you said, Adam, they're they're all competent performers as well. And again, that comes out of this thing we've been talking about all the time that goes back, I suppose, to the 40s, and then we mentioned it in the 60s and 70s, this concept of the all-round entertainer. And I think these people all saw themselves as that. Or the business, the business sort of changed in the 80s. And I think the 80s wanted people to be like that. It wanted people that could move from MTV to television shows to movies, back to records, to touring, and, uh, and and bring the whole package. And so it's interesting that the people who became big as movie stars via the music business in, in that era were, more often than not, these people who were seen as being the all-round entertainer. I think the one exception to that might, might be Sting, 
he's more of a conventional front man of a band. But again, I think the ambition was there within him to let's see if I can act. Let's see if I can get in front of a camera and do movies. And I think some of his film choices as well are a little more experimental than some of the others. You didn't get Sting appearing in big commercial movies. His persona was a little bit weirder than that. And I think that shows in the film choices that he made. Yeah, I think I think you as we were talking about just just then, um megastars being formed in the eighties, I guess you're talking Madonna, Michael Jackson, and Prince's I think Prince's movie career. So I want to talk about Prince now. Prince's movie career is very much all about making Prince a megastar. It's not really about him wanting to be an actor. You know, I think it goes to show on the first when Purple Rain came out, he had the number one film number one album and number one single in the same day yeah so it's all it's all part of the brand then exactly yeah and to him i'm not even sure whether whether the film being number one was that important to him i think it was important in getting his because he he'd had like five albums prior to that the fifth album 1999 was a was a big hit but it was a big hit in the sense that it sold three million records whereas like michael jackson's thriller sold 12 million records, you know what I mean? And Prince was looking at that going like, I want that. I want I want to be there. I want to cross over from the black music radio stations in America. And I want to cross over onto MTV, into the mainstream. And how can I do that? And he did that via Purple Rain. And he created the whole project. It's a proper vanity project, but with a goal of getting him over. Yeah. And again, again, in which he's playing a, a version of himself, really. Exactly. And I think, it's, I think it's not a performance. No, and I think the canny thing that Prince did, he recognised that what people wouldn't have seen at that point was his his live performance. They wouldn't have seen that. You know, they, they, they might have seen a couple of pop videos he'd done for 1999, but he he was black artists weren't being played on MTV other than Michael Jackson. So his idea was to try and get as much of him performing in the film as possible. And he was like, it's like, I don't know how much of him on stage there is, but it's got to be 40, 45 minutes of a, of a 90 minute film, you know, just one big advertisement. It completely music. is. And it's yeah. got, it's got a loose plot and it strings together. And, and, but ultimately you're sitting there waiting for the next performance and he's no, he's not, he's not going to challenge anyone's acting <laughs> talents prints. You know, he's, he does what he has to do and gets out of dodge as it were, you know, as you say, the, the plot is so loose and so sort of based around the music that it, it could have been it could have been done by Billy Fury or someone in the 1960s. You know, it's 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 still using that 1950s rock and roll movie template. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like he's supposed to be Prince versus another band. And, and it's like three bands in it. There's that like Prince, The Time, and, and Vanity Six. And Prince writes all the music for all the bands. <laughs> so it's kind of like, it's all Prince. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter if you listen back. It's all Prince, yeah. you know. Do, do you think that sort of plays into it? This is what I was saying earlier about these layers that, that are within the, the, the persona of the, of, of the star, you know. There's a sense that he knew that we knew that and it was all part of the playfulness of the film the fact that um, on screen there's supposed to be this competition going on between the acts and off off screen the reality is that oh yeah i'm a genius i wrote it all 
I, I don't know. I really don't. I, again, as we talked about with Madonna, you know, people are aware of the power. I don't know how aware people were that Prince was writing as much music as 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 we do know now. You know, you know, he was writing stuff for the Bangles. He was writing stuff for Stevie Nicks. He was writing stuff for all kinds of different people throughout the 80s, particularly during that period, 83 to 85, 86 period. So I don't know how, I don't know how much that was public knowledge. You know, I was like, Eight. Again, might might that have been? I, I, I suppose there were there would be a certain level. Even at that point, there'd have been a certain level of Prince fan that, that had bought the six albums and that knew all about him. It wasn't, he, you know, he wasn't the figure that he became later. Purple Rain made him into mm. that figure, of course. But already he got a sizable fan base, and maybe it's a sort of in thing for them, you know that that. I'll write all the music for this and I know that there's a strata of my fans that will recognise that and that will take that away as an extra little layer in the movie. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's, one <of> the, <laughs> it's one of the things. I know he was very... Adam, why Why is it that your answer to every question we put about Prince is, I don't know. That shows... I, that shows I don't what, want to speak for the man. <laughs> well, that show, that, I think that shows what an, what an enigma he was. You know? Well, I, th- I think he was definitely keen on creating uh, uh, what he wanted the world to see as the Minneapolis sound. Yeah which in effect was just him. <laughs> well, he was spreading it out. He had a girl band, he had a funk band, he had his, him as the rock stars. Sort of I mean, because in, in, this, in this film, he, he transitioned away and, and started playing lead guitar. And as we know, you know, he's an amazing lead guitarist. But prior to that, he hadn't picked, he, he played guitar, but he wasn't known as the guitarist. And then you open up on Purple Rain right. and there he is like a rock star with a guitar, you know, on stage, like all those seventies rock bands, those mega stars, you know, it was it was a statement, and, and I think Madonna. It, it was similar in the sense of like she was just trying to to just to be as big a megastar as she could possibly be, and movies were a next were a natural step for that. Um, Michael Jackson never quite managed that, but he was just so big anyway. It didn't well, really matter. Michael do Moonwalker, and that was effectively like his again. It was just an advertisement for Michael Jackson. Yeah, 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 exactly. So what, what, what do we think about um, these actors, and in particular Prince and Madonna, when later on, having, having done the, the sort of showcase um, movies and, and appeared on MTV and everything, um, suddenly they get into projects where they've actually got to act and they've got to play a character. How, how good are they? I think Madonna did fine. I, I never had any problem with any Madonna films. And I, like we were saying earlier, um, I just think when the star's that big, did you, and especially from the 80s onwards, everything's just under so much of a spotlight. Any dodgy scene, that's the one that they're going to pull them up on. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't think that... I don't think they. I don't think it's a fair comparison for Prince because I don't think Prince ever really got offered projects that he that he took like Madonna or other actors did. I think he he always was in control. It's just the vanity project that Prince was doing at that point was not what people wanted or were interested in. You know, so he's, he's making a black and white movie in the age of MTV. Yeah. You know, it's like, because, <laughs> that's obviously a vanity project for him. Yeah, because yeah. he can, yeah. yeah. Rob, Rob a, a, a remark you just made there has raised a question with me, and it's about critical response to these. Do you think that... In particular, movie critics, I would guess, are, are gunning for people like this. That there's a sense that 
what's Madonna doing making films, you know, and and we're going to be extra critical. Something you just said there made me yeah. think that you, you might want to sort of elaborate on that. A lot of time, I think people have already made up their minds. It's Because I remember when Shanghai Surprise came out, we mentioned that earlier, because it was when she was with Sean Penn. So I remember the, not that, I don't know if anticipation's the word, but there was a lot of hype and people are almost like saying, this is going to be rubbish. This is going to be terrible. Yeah, yeah. Before it had even come out, yeah. whether, whatever you thoughts on the film are later on after you'd seen it i don't know but yeah i think there's just like a preconception and people like to see famous people fail <laughs> i think then but then you do get exceptions like later on like someone like justin timberlake who people perhaps didn't expect to see as an actor uh, I think that just made him more famous and people like, oh, cracky, he's pretty good. <laughs> One I'd throw in is uh, Harry Connick Jr., which again goes goes back to right back to the start and people like Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra making films. Here's like the modern day, the 1990s attempt to, to be that type of crooner hey, let's, type entertainer. Let's not forget Cannonball Run with Sammy Davis Jr. and Dee Martin. Yeah, that was yeah. fine acting in that. <laughs> That's where you want to go for yeah. crooners. Again, you know, the, the, the crooners, they might not always be to our musical taste, but often, often make great, great movie yeah, they, performers. They might they have been have... smashed out of the faces and high on coke yeah. during Cannonball Run, but yeah, it was yeah. still on a great comedic performance. Yeah, and again, they, they go right back to stuff like Ocean's Eleven, don't they? Mm. You know, and the, the whole Rat Pack thing. So that, that all came to the movies and uh, and and really entertainingly. So uh... I think there's two, there's two strands here we're talking about. We're talking about pop stars who dabble in acting, like Madonna's, uh, who, who transition to acting. But then you also get people who, I don't think, for instance, like uh, Chris Christopherson thinks of himself as one or the other. No. I think he thinks I, I I'm a country western singer and I am an actor. Or and so I think Justin Timberlake is a similar thing. I think he yeah. thinks of himself as I'm a pop star uh, singer dancer, but I'm also an actor. Yeah. Whereas I yeah. think Madonna yeah. always thought of herself as like I'm a megastar mm-hmm. and I've done a bit of acting as well to help me become more of a megastar. Yeah, well, we've been talking about this whole sort of you know song and dance man thing and this whole package thing, and I, I think. It's often forced by the industry. They often try and manipulate figures into, into trying to do a bit of everything. And the two names you've mentioned there, Adam, Christopherson and, and Timberlake, are people who could genuinely do that anyway. You know, they're people who are genuinely multi-talented and, and they don't need the help of the business. To, they, they've just got, just got the natural talent. And uh, I mean, Christopherson's a, a fascinating figure because he, he worked three times for Sam Peckinpah. And in very difficult roles often, you know, he could he could play the lead, but he could also play very interesting little bit parts. Um, I mean, the, the, the scenes that he has in uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia are, are very, very disturbing, you know. And he's on screen only for a few minutes, but he makes an impact. Have you guys seen Chris Christopherson in Wheeler, the Stephen Dorff film? So he teams back up with Stephen Dorff from a few no, years ago. No, a I'm music not, film. I've not seen that, no. Um, I don't know if you, it's a film, it's in my top five music related films of all time, along with almost famous and backbeat. But uh, I don't know if you know, Stephen Dorff's family are very musical. His dad's a world famous country music writer and his brother was as well. So Stephen Dorff wanted to make a music film about Nashville. So rather than going into Nashville as Stephen Dorff, who everyone would recognize, he got all prosthetic makeup on and they almost, they did like a, not a found footage film, but pretended he was a country music star moving from Texas 
and trying to break into the Nashville scene. And Chris Christopherson's in that playing himself. Uh, it's a wonderful film, really is. I, I, love, I love the idea that Stephen Dorff is the least talented member of his family. <laughs> it just makes me laugh that. The interesting thing is that he actually wrote and recorded the soundtrack for that film as well. And the songs are A-grade. It's okay. amazing. Yeah, it's so good. I would say that um, without having seen the film, and I now want to see it, it sounds fabulous. Um, the fact that he went to Chris Christopherson as, as his sort of way into to the country music business shows that he knew his stuff. He went to the right guy. You know, yeah. he went he went to someone who, A, has got a foot in that world, but B, is also a bit of an outlaw, a bit of an outsider, yeah. someone on the fringes of country music, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a Johnny Cash type figure. And, and of course, Chris also knows the movie business inside out, yeah. as we've just been saying. So the perfect choice, I think. I mean, again, it, sh- it strikes me again, again, why aren't they more metal movies? Because we've got like loads of country and Western stars crossover into mm-hmm. acting. You get in the nineties, particularly in the nineties and, and and onwards, but it started in the nineties. You had loads of hip hop stars starring in any number of gangster movies, uh, Boys in the Hood style movies. We want Hanoi Rocks or Twisted Sister or some of the nineties bands in a haunted house. <laughs> yeah, oh, oh yeah. As I, as I mentioned when I emailed Rob about this, I want a Guns and Roses Western. And again, you know, what, what we were saying earlier about Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin's management getting in the way, I think any Guns N' Roses project that was mooted, you'd have Axel getting in the way. They weren't even recording or touring for long periods of time because someone in the band decided not to, you know. So and getting them getting them all together in front of a movie camera, I think, would have been an impossibility. I, I, I don't care about the logistics. I want it to happen, Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> there's also the rabbit hole of biopics as well as in yeah. that's yeah. a whole nother podcast <laughs> yeah especially when you get i suppose the the first one to mention there is going back to the 70s and um diana ross doing lady sings the blues you know so so you've got you've got a biopic of one music performer with another star in the role and that's that's quite often a thing you know where they feel the need to cast a musician in the part of another musician yeah i don't and and it really rarely works rarely works tina Turner, why didn't she do more acting because she's fantastic in um man max three as a sort of like screen wow, yeah. presence. I'm, I'm glad you've brought her up, Adam, because I've just been looking down my notes and I've noticed that I didn't mention um, uh, Ken Russell's films when we were talking about the mid-70s British movies. And, of course, he did Listomania with um, Roger Daltrey, Paul Nicholas, Ringo Starr, and then Tommy, um, yeah. which had Tina in it. So, and, and she again, she doesn't she steal that movie? It's funny. We were talking. I was talking. I was talking to a friend. I said, "I'm going to do this, this, this thing." And he says, "Well, what's your criteria? You know, like wh- how are you going to decide which pop star movies?" And I said, "Well, we'll probably just wing it as we're here." But but, uh, <laughs> but the, one of the comparisons I made I said, "I said we'll talk about Tommy, but we'll talk about we'll talk about Elton John and Tina Turner in Tommy, but not Roger Daltrey." Yeah, yeah. Uh, and because because it's because it, he's playing a version of himself, I guess, in this in this thing that he's written. Well, I like I like that approach because Roger Daltrey's playing playing the the character, you know, and, and it's written as a dramatic character. It's not written as a pop star. Whereas these sideline characters, you know, your sort of second string characters come on, and 
it's all glam. It's all about the music performance. You know, it's all about Elton John wearing the, the most gigantic pair of platform shoes ever. It's all about Tina Turner making an impression that, that just eclipses everything else in the film, you know. Just just thinking about some of those actors that, um, we're not talking about Will Smith. No, no. He's, he is a musician, but is he now better known as an actor? Oh, he probably is. Yeah, absolutely is. But he still he has still had massive rap mm-hmm. records throughout his I career. Think, I think he was like semi successful as with DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Yeah, him. did the TV show mm-hmm. that took things to the next level. Going to movies. Oh, this guy can act. He is a star. And then one helped the other. I think in a way the music. Yeah, career. it gets to that point where. People will pay enough attention to both sides of it. And, and I think there's an ambition and a drive that's been evident in Will Smith's career ever since those early days. And and as as him being someone who was going to sort of push himself and push himself until he got to the top, mm-hmm. he's, he's not quite, the, again, this thing we've been talking about, you could perhaps fit him into that sort of all-round entertainer thing. But I think he's done it in stages, as you, as you just went through there, Rob. Um, that, that, yeah, he's, he started out as one thing, then turned himself into another and another. And there's always been this sort of drive to be number one and to get to the top in anything that he does. In in terms of is he a good actor, I I, I think so. In in the right mm. project, yeah. he, he he can he's certainly got a very good screen presence, and it's not the same sort of presence that a Prince or a David Bowie or a Madonna has. I think there's the sense of a real actor in there. Yeah, you know? I think yeah. it's it looks like someone who's made smart decisions as well he's took yeah, every, yeah. not just a quick grab oh here's a chance to make a movie you've been offered a script it's going to give you three million dollars or whatever it's almost like not calculated but it's thought is this going to be good for my career is this something that i can do well and feel proud about it seems to be those kind of decisions with will smith yeah and he, he has a, a, a star presence but it's much more in the line of a humphrey bogart john wayne screen presence he's like he's he's, he's a star yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a movie star. Movie yeah. star, that's right, yeah. Whereas, Do you mean that in the way of, like, when you see a Will Smith film, you're seeing Will Smith on the screen rather than the character? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. I mean, it's not often where you watch a Will Smith movie where he's dramatically different. Yeah. He, you know, he's he, very he, good, he, but not dramatically yeah. different. He, he does play on his persona, but the, the, thi- the thing that is different about him is, although he's playing on a particular persona, he's not playing on his pop star persona no. in, the, in the way that Madonna maybe does, although he did, you know. Yeah. Um, it's more, you're, you're, you're watching a real actor, you're watching someone who, who is part of the, the proper movie business. I mean, arguably, a lot of those hip-hop stars have, have become very good actors. And maybe maybe it's something about the genre of music that's not as much of a a leap from rapping about what they know and they realise yeah. and that kind of stuff to becoming an actor. And, I mean, and Eminem did them. surprisingly well. I think he yeah. surprised everybody. So I, we've, we've talked about megastars, and predominantly we've talked about the eighties megastars and things like that. Has there been any star vehicles that have been successful in the last? 20 years? Well, I, I was on the verge, Adam, before you said all that, of throwing in a, a, a recent name. Um, but it's, it's a name that sort of ties in with, with the history of this type of film. The name is Lady Gaga. And again, she's had a very interesting, very low-key movie career. But again, it could be that it, she's someone who's predominantly, she's very, very visual in her look and her persona she's very visual on stage 
So she's almost sort of done the movie thing without being in movies. And then you look at her film choices, and other than the big one, which is A Star is Born, which again links back to Chris Christopherson had done it with Barbara Streisand in, in the 70s. So it's a, the, a Star is Born, and Judy Garland, of course, had done it. So it's a big vehicle that for every generation of pop star, you know, every there and there'll be versions of A Star is Born going on into the future long after we're dead, you know. But Lady Gaga, prior to doing A Star is Born and having the big smash, had been a tiny little part of the of the Robert Rodriguez universe. And she'd made a real impact in those films. She does a, she does a little bit in the Sin City sequel. But it's a little bit that has a great impact and makes you think I'd love to see her in a sort of modern day film noir, you know. And then best of all, I thought, was she plays one of the uh, shape-shifting um, personas of the uh, chameleon character in Machete Kills. And again, is one of the standouts in that. Again, she's on screen for about two minutes in that and really grabs that film and throws it at you and says, look, I'm here, you know, this is what I do. And um, I, I wish rather, rather than sort of taking the Hollywood dollar and doing the obvious thing and being in a version of A Star Is Born, I wish she'd stayed in that sort of cult arena and done these little walk-ons and done a bit more work with Robert Rodriguez. That's sort of what I, I thought we were going to get from Lady Gaga. And I like, I like A Star Is Born, but there was this sense to, to me within that film of she's sort of doing what's expected of her. And that isn't what I want from her. I don't know. I mean, she she did the American Horror Story yeah. series, didn't she, as well? But I, I feel like the Lady Gaga in um, A Star Is Born is not what people expect from her. I, you know, I don't I expect. I don't think people look at Lady Gaga's pop career and think, yes, you know, uh, this is what I want. And then you they don't get that from A Star Is Born. They get a very different type of story. A much toned down version. Mm. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. I mean, where, where I'm where I'm saying that um, she, she's doing the expected thing is in terms of the size of the project and the fact that she's got a lead role, you know. But but you're absolutely right in saying that the character in that story is something that is a, a shift for her. It is something that's a bit challenging. I think so. I don't think many people expect pop stars to act in movies that are going for Oscars. I think ultimately no. it's that. I think there's an inbuilt, as, as we've talked about earlier, you, you know, they're waiting to take them down. As often happens, you know, they and as happened in this case, they win best song, don't they? You know, they they get to appear at the Oscars and they do they do the the the, the musical the the musical montage bit, and then they they win the they win the Oscar or come second in the best song or best music category, don't they? So. Yeah, I mean, think about Star Beagle's last twenty years. It's interesting. It's, it is interesting to see how how people react to their inevitable flops, <laughs> because yeah, the pop stars tend to be in the movie and they flop. So you've got yeah. like Britney Spears in Crossroads, big flop. You know, you got uh, Mariah Carey in Glitter. Yeah, yeah. And Mariah Carey actually argued about Mariah Carey came back and did. Um, Precious, didn't she, yeah. in uh, late two thousands, which was a very different role, and she was very good in it. You know, so maybe. Maybe there's hope for her. How much of this, again, is down to what we've already talked about, about the critics not wanting this to happen. Yeah. And so having, having, as you were saying earlier, Rob, you know, they've, they've almost written their reviews the week before they see the film, you know. Yeah. I mean, the first one that jumps to my mind is someone who I thought might have been able to go down a, a film career is John Bon Jovi. Mm-hmm. I thought he might have been able to cross over. Um, he certainly gave it a good stab in the, 
90s with yeah well he did the U U five seven one yeah uh, which he he was he was pretty good in and uh, well I think we I mean I was I was a Jovi fan when I was a teenager so I'm again back on more comfortable ground here now but um, Jovi was I think it was an interesting interesting take on it because he took it buddy seriously mm-hmm. you know That's he had, I, kind of felt like yeah this from like a career point this hmm. is my next logical step yeah but he did acting lessons. Yeah, you know, he, and, he, and the first role he took was like Moonlight and Valentino. Uh, yeah, that was kind of like Kathleen Turner drag comedy big vehicle for it. I mean, yeah. it was like a spot him if you can in Young Guns too. I remember. Seeing yeah, that. yeah, yeah. I remember that as well. He's got to get shot somewhere. Where is he? <laughs> yeah, it's hardly a role though, was it? No. <laughs> it was like... It was, Emilio, it was I'll do the down. soundtrack for it if you put me in the film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that soundtrack I played ad nauseum uh, when I was a kid. Um, but yeah, but he, but he seemed to to progress. Uh, become comfortable with his acting, become comfortable being an actor, and then took on smaller roles yeah. and built it. Or they're never really built to that. Um, I guess maybe him him moving on like that coincided with, with Bon Jovi's um, <laughs> pop music, pop career dipping a little bit, and it, and they never quite aligned at the perfect moment where they could conceivably cast him in a big role. Mm-hmm. And have the kudos of of, of Bon Jovi as well. Yeah. In in that sense, though, Adam, he might well be someone who makes a surprising comeback in fifteen years, doing sort of older character parts or something. Because yeah. he's got he's got the talent for that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's got acting chops. Definitely. Well, I saw him in the lead. Was it the leading man he was yeah. in uh, with Tandy, Tandy Newton? Um, uh, that was that. He was really good in that. Uh, you know, and, and he showed he had some sort of uh, screen presence, definitely. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he will. Maybe he'll just do another Bon Jovi tour. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? So is, is there anybody out there, I guess just to wrap up, because we, we, we're running out of, uh, of time and, uh, and pop stars. Uh, is, there, is there any, any act, artist, uh, band that you would have liked to have seen in a movie? I mean, Rob, have you got any... Guys, where you think, oh, I would love to have seen them in a movie. Wow. A lot of my favorite ones have kind of tried. I mean, I'm, I was a big fan of Poison, and Brett Michaels did one film, mm. which was shocking. <laughs> he got buddies he, with Charlie Sheen at one point, and Charlie Sheen was having this low budget movie career. And they didn't, did didn't Brett there. Michaels do sort of like a death row film? Yeah, Letter from Death Row. Letter from Death Row. Shaved yeah, I his remember head that. and everything. <laughs> yeah. That's acting. It really yeah. it was just a no, wig yeah. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> But other than that, I don't know. I don't think there's anyone who I'd actually like to see. I guess, I guess it's one that I, I, it's not so much that we didn't see them in, in, in movies, but I wanted to see them in more movies, I guess, is David Johansson. Oh, um, right. yeah, he, crops up, he crops up in Free Jack, obviously, but it's, it's not his finest hour, um, that being Scrooge, obviously. But um, I would have liked yes, to have seen him in more, in more yeah. mainstream. More- well, he, he did that great. He, he was in an episode of the uh, Tales from the Dark Side movie, wasn't he, which he, he was really good in. And, uh, um, yeah, I, I love Johansson. Again, going right back to sort of glam rock days. I wish there'd been a New York Dolls um, glam rock movie in that era that we were talking about earlier. They were the one band who, who didn't, sort of get involved in that you know i suppose because they were american and it was all happening over in britain really movie wise but uh, he's now become one of these people who's actually known by certain generations as a movie star yeah. who used to be in a band you know rather than be for, for me he's like oh the lead singer of the new york dolls the king of glam rock you know but a lot of people just think of him as a film star now 
I think most people think of it as the ghost of Christmas battle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even burrowing well, even further down, you know. Well, again, I, I, I think he comes on and steals that film. Mm, definitely, yeah. That's the thing we've mentioned quite a lot during this talk is about um, what I think one thing pop stars can do is rather than take leads in films and rather than be the sort of big I am in the movie is come on, do a little cameo, appear in one scene, and nail it and end up being the thing that you remember, yeah. you know. That's almost like a smart progression move rather than like, oh, I'm going to be a film star now. Oh, I'm just going to try it. And then it, it just takes people by surprise. Like, oh, they're really good. I wasn't yeah. expecting that. I mean, the one, the one that I just, just reminded me of another, another uh, artist that I'm a big fan of that I feel like it, it's less a case of uh, wanting to see him in more movies and more of a case of trying to find the right director and project to bring their particularly unique um, persona to the screen. And that's Tom Waits, wow, like a proper yes. like late 80s, early 90s Tom Waits rather than the crooner of the 70s, which we kind of got in uh, One From The Heart kind of thing. Again, you're, you're right, Adam. He, he always, if he appears in a film, he always plays himself or a sort of variant on it. But as a, as a character, you know, he's, he's got that thing that he can do where he can play the film character, but there's this heavy, heavy element of it's Tom Waits inside, guys, you know, and uh, um, and I'm going to play this in a very Tom Waits-like way, you know, and, uh, and there is that sort of recognition factor there. And I think that's good for his fans, you know. They, they get a lot out of that. When he, play, he played, uh, he played Renfield in the uh, mm. uh, Dracula, didn't he? And played it as played it as Tom Waits, you know, and and ended up being again the best thing in the film. Yeah. Not yeah. not that that was difficult in Dracula. You need kind of like a Tom Waits character for this role, guys. Well, let's get Tom Waits. He's gonna. Yeah. I know he can do it <laughs> on screen. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Yeah. Thank you so much. I think we've covered pretty much most of the big guys and the big uh, girls from the music world and the acting world. So I wasn't expecting to span about five decades, guys. We, 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 we don't mess around. We don't mess around here. Yeah, we jump jump around around. Uh, well, that's the history of, of music, isn't it? Pop music, definitely, uh, we've covered. One name we've missed out, I think, uh, is Tyre Wilcox. I think she is a really interesting actor. Very different to her music, but... Uh, and again, sort of st- started out really sort of do, wanting to do both and, and did both as parallel careers. And yeah. um, there's a bit of crossover early on. She was she was in Jubilee, of course, but then she was in in The Tempest for Derek mm-hmm. Jarman very soon after. And I think that showed before the end of the 70s and before she'd out of her teens, really, she's already shown her talent and what she can do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And obviously we haven't covered vanilla ice in Cool as Ice. Oh. <laughs> Maybe next time. Yeah. Well, we, well, the reason we haven't is, we again, we're going to do a whole three-part podcast <laughs> just about that movie. We're going to do a three-part podcast on the ices. Vanilla ice, ice tea, and ice cube. <laughs> no. Cool. Thank you so much for joining us, Rob. Thank you. I've loved it. Thank you for inviting me. Cool. We will be back in another couple of weeks with another great podcast. Again, I want to thank Quad and the BFI for supporting us to do these podcasts. And also, if you've got any ideas of topics you want us to cover, maybe you out there really, really, really want us to cover the three ices. Please let us know. Hit us up on our Facebook page or you can email us at adammatdabbyquad.co.uk. We'll see you next time. Take care.